Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blade Disgusting's horror video game podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Pope. And this week sees the return of our chopping block segment, in which one of us assigns the other spooky homework and attempt to help us tackle our collectively growing bat catalogs. And for this month's chopping block, Neil has picked 2016's Virginia from developer Variable State. In this BAFTA Game Awards winner, the player finds themselves in the shoes of a recent FBI graduate, Ann Tarver, who's investigating a missing persons case in, you guessed it, Virginia, in the year 1992. What ensues is Ann navigating a troubling investigation, rocky relationship with her partner, and the hierarchy pressures from her superiors. So, Neil, this is a game that you were, of course, familiar with, mm-hmm. but I had not had the chance to play yet. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, what about this game makes it a standout that you would, you know, prioritize it for chopping block because as uh, we've chatted about numerous times, our back catalogs are, you know, ever growing. And I'm sure more often than not, we're recommending the other person check out more hits than misses just, you know, based on the fact that we've kind of gotten to know each other's tastes and games and movies and these things. So, you know, what about Virginia is a standout for you amongst any number of games I'm sure you could recommend I check out. <laughs> well, apart from being a relatively brisk, mechanically unchallenging game, uh, Virginia does things that I still don't really see in other games to this day. Um, I mean, in a world full of cinematic games, Virginia actually puts you in the shoes of a performer in a play, in a sense, uh, asking you to take your mark to progress to the next scene. Um, what I like about it is that it swings for the fences commitment wise and doesn't care if it's going to piss people off of the direction it takes. Um, so it's that rare game where it would understand, you know, a two out of 10 review, which it got in some places and a 10 out of 10 review, which it got in some places. Uh, as a result, I, I really think it deserves to gain a wider audience and appreciation, uh, regardless of what people end up feeling about it after playing it. So yeah. It's also, you know, if we're talking about where it qualifies in its horror credentials here, you know, it's not in the traditional sense, but, you know, being 90s Virginia FBI-esque stuff, um, and certainly a lot of the theme of it, it, there's a bit of Lynch, a bit of X-Files to it, um, you know, especially in the, you know, it's presented as a play, so it has a bit of Von Trier as well to it and not in the brutal sense but in the uh like experimental sense i would call it uh yeah the 90s set is thing i said the a detective trying to find a missing kid very twin peaks uh, a basement office for an outcast agent very x-files and a conspiracy paranoia plan to it and the music itself is a mix of all things but has a very twin peaksy sort of vibe to it uh which admittedly i didn't really know until after I played this because I hadn't watched Twin Peaks until after I played this originally. So I liked it for reasons that other people probably didn't like it. <laughs> so. It was funny that you mentioned like the fact that you could understand it being a two out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 type of game. Mm. And, you know, as somebody that has enjoyed, you know, what I'll, for semantic sake, like walking simulator type experiences, yeah. you know, I'm going into this, not knowing anything about it other than you had recommended it. And you know, I could immediately get the sense of like hearing people shouting from the internet, if you will, uh, in terms of just like the direction, the sensibilities and storytelling, overall, a lack of, you know, there is interactivity, but it is very singular in that interactivity, more so 
restrictive than, you know, other similar types of experience that I've played when you think about something like, you know, Gone Home or Firewatch, right? There's a little bit more freedom in traversal, but in this, as you had put, and I would say aptly put, you know, it is very much like a play. There's one thing to do. Sure, you can maybe walk around an environment a little bit, but there's only one thing for the player to interact with to progress, uh, if you will. But, you know, I think what I was most taken with, and it's still an element to this game that I think is quite strong overall, and it's why, you know, I would say that while it's not terrifying, I still consider it to be, you know, horror adjacent. And that's with some of the more supernatural elements Mm -hmm. that are really used to reinforce the plight of these characters, which, you know, their predicament that they're both facing is not supernatural in origin or anything like that. But it was a very remarkable use, I thought, of supernatural elements that dabble in horror at times to further emphasize those and to make that predicament, you know, really allowing the player to feel the palpable emotions that those characters themselves are probably grappling Mm -hmm. with. And the ways in which they convey that might be strange, it might be abstract, it might be ominous. But, you know, in presenting them as such, it makes them, you know, relatable to people, whether or not you've had any types of, you know, conflict like that, whether it be social, whether it be, you know, politics of an office place or this conundrum that comes across your plate, if you will. Um, It was a game that, I thought was able to take a narrative that is very true crime mystery based that's grounded, but then dabbling in the fantastical in a way that doesn't, doesn't really, you know, stifle that grounded nature. If anything, again, it emphasizes it in a way that makes it even more remarkable. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's a great blend of that. It's surrealism is quite grounded in a way that it's often explained away as being like the, dreams and nightmares of the character you know and the guilt that they have and you know aside from the horror stuff the story itself being this sort of cycle of how office politics work and you know not and trying to break that cycle is a fascinating one itself one that isn't readily apparent but grows as you get to experience it more and more um yeah i there's, there's so much more I could say about this, but it, is there anything that you particularly want to sort of touch on first? Yeah, you know, I just thought that the ways in which they're able to make more of a broad sort of, let's say, objective, right? Yeah. Where Anne is being partnered with another agent, Maria, and they're investigating a missing child, right, mm. in the town of Kingdom, Virginia, which, you know, on paper sounds like any other kind of missing persons uh, procedural that people have are probably familiar with, right? And I really liked the way that in a short amount of time, because for me, this game took just over 90 minutes to complete. The fact that they're able to insert the player into this character's role and immediately layer the complexities of their life, not just in relation to the case, but, you know, their past, the potential of their history, what they're contending with to the degree that the case itself doesn't end up being the focal point for a majority of the time. It just begins to become the foundation of what's happening. But really at a certain point, you almost forget about it because it's such an, the focus is so internal on the character, right? And Anne very quickly is tasked with investigating her partner, Maria. And, you know, what I think really complements again, 
the level of storytelling, the layered personableness of the storytelling is the direction of everything. Mm. Because as we haven't mentioned up until this point, there's no dialogue in the game no, that, other than brief text on like a document that's handed to the player. But there's no dialogue. No. So everything is told through the physicality of characters' body language. And, you know, the further the game gets into that plight, the more this sort of, you know, surreal nature of the dreamscape and all these things become. Overall, I didn't feel lost as much as I perhaps thought I would yeah. upon learning that. Um, you know, granted, when you get to the last chapter of the game and it becomes so surreal that at a point you're kind of like, well, what is real? What is fantasy? What is the true direction, perhaps, of this story? Overall, though, I ended my experience not feeling as lost or confused as I thought I would be. And, mm -hmm. you know, for a developer right out of the gate to make a game like that, that's such a massive narrative swing. And yet, overall, I didn't feel that it was a disservice to the overall story. No, there's a cohesion to the way everything is done. You know, for a studio, as you say, it was two years old by the time the game finally came out. And I think key to that is just that all aspects of the game were handled by people in-house, if you will. You know, as we'll get to the music at some point, you know, Lyndon Holland was doing that, but he also helped write the script. You know, and it's got a very collaborative feel you know in a very like a close feel um in that it finds detail even without saying things which variable state did the opposite of with last stop the game they followed this up with last year where it still very much got those points across but with dialogue and like it could sort of go a bit more in depth and have real character uh you know, development like that and span across multiple characters. Here, it's very much just like focusing on what needs to be in the shot, what needs to be seen, you know. And the other thing we haven't really talked about is that while it is, for all intents and purposes, a walking simulator, if you will, it cuts like a film. You know, it, like mm. you, you will do something up to a point and then it can it will fade into the next scene. Um, and it does really well at discombobulating you as a player where you don't ever really feel quite as in control of what's going on as you should you don't have a full grasp on things you're not walking around the environment picking up notes and going oh okay you know, like all, that, all the time it's more about taking snapshots of someone's story in the same way you would a movie where you're trying to fill in the gaps yourself you know as oh, okay so if this has happened and that has happened and as you say as things get more surreal and whilst that is explained to some degree it does sort of blur the line between reality and unreality and that's really cool to get and yeah i i, I like that it handles that in such a, a mature and elegant fashion yeah i you know in playing the game, and then I went back and replayed the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of it just to refamiliarize myself with some of the more uh, surprising, again, the fact that it's cut together like a movie, yeah. right? Because if the very beginning of the game, and you know, specifically for me, not going into it, knowing anything about it, I was kind of like caught off guard by yeah. that. But then, of course, you get used to it, right? So I started to equate it almost to feeling kind of like a uh, 
like a Nicholas Wending Refn film, uh, not so much in the content, but in the style, right? And yeah. I think to some of his earlier films, something like Valhalla Rising or, you know, it's a little more recent, but like Only God Forgives, where both of those films have a distinct lack of dialogue compared to his other films. Yeah. But he's able to convey the storytelling through the physicality of the performances, the body language of characters, but also capturing characters, you know, their mental state or sort of how they're grappling with the situation through the ways in which he's editing and cutting scenes together. So that way you almost lose sense of the period of time, which then in fact actually like informs when characters have these big overt sort of reactions to things because it catches you off guard to a certain extent, but the way it's cut together, you kind of are like, well, has this happened the next day, two days, three days, a week later? And it really does create this sort of like dreamlike sense of a reality in what the characters themselves are going through. And again, to experience that in a game, it further just sort of instills the importance, I think, or the potential rather of specifically these, you know, what is dubbed as walking simulator type experiences, because it shows that even if the player doesn't have a great variable of options and whatnot, you can still have interesting storytelling mechanics in there that at the end of the day, you know, people like you and I probably don't view as being as restrictive overall as, you know, some people that have maybe more vitriol responses to these things do because of the type of unique storytelling that's being displayed in games such as this. Yeah, and see, one of the things I like about this style of play, where it is this sort of filmic hybrid, you know, play hybrid, and how it works for the game, is that once you've done a playthrough, it's almost like rehearsals, you know? And you can then decide one or two ways to go about it. There are collectibles and things you can do in the game that, that like, trigger certain things, but they're very offbeat and surreal and you often find them by accident you know mm. i mean i finally got the platinum for this game on this playthrough uh because there was like one trophy i'd forgotten to got the last time which is literally to pick up a pair of glasses earlier early on in the game and later to look to your left at the secretary and that triggers a trophy because it's her glasses yeah. <laughs> it's nuts but little things like that it's just it has a bunch of stuff like that, like finding feathers and all sorts. Yeah, and, and it's mad how that, that works out in itself, but you can play it as a game in, in a way. But playing it in the same sense that you would Until Dawn, where once you know how it works, you can then begin to feel more like the director or actor in the situation and push the story whilst it, it has, you know, very rigid structure, you know, you are able to push it exactly how you want the performance to come through, you know, without words. And without words is the most important thing about this game, is that you are expressing yourself in those limited confines by simply by your movements and what you decide to do in a scene. And that, it, to me, is an absolutely fascinating way of dealing with things. Because... Whereas Until Dawn, it's very obvious, like, well, this person could die, like that. And that's how you are directing a movie in that sense, or the quarry even does that. But here, it's like, no, 
the outcome is this. You will not change anything by doing this. It's very much about how you adhere to the script in minute ways. And that subtlety obviously is not going to be, I don't think it's as easily appreciated in games. And in terms of like walking sim style games, it's a really novel approach. Like I said, I don't really think I've seen done as well since or even close, you know. And so, and there have been other games in that sort of subgenre that have done fantastically in their own right in terms of storytelling. You know, stuff like What Remains of Edith Finch came out like a year after this, I think, and was stellar in its own way. But this, just every year that passes, there are facets of this game that just make me go, wow. I, I as much as I appreciate that it would you know, people will bounce off it for various reasons that I've explained, you know, I, I'm just blown away that it isn't a bigger deal at the same time. Yeah, you know, it really is what I would think is a shining example of the potentials of you know the the various types of storytelling that you can do within this subgenre, um, and you know, not having an ounce of fat on it, and I think that that's what really comes through in those very distinct and apparent, you know, cutting together of scenes where you're walking down a hallway and just when you're like, okay, I'm just going to keep walking, keep walking, you cut right to where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And, you know, little moments like that or even interactions that can seem, you know, inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, like you said, picking up a pair of glasses, you know, it's still given a certain level of significance, whether it be great or small, like every single bit of interactivity adds something to the experience. Yes. Whereas you're not just like picking up random shit around the environment. And then, you know, like something like gone home, which is a game that again, I probably enjoy more than, you know, most, but even when you're picking up certain environment um, objects in the environment, right. It initially it's helping to instill like the setting, yeah. getting a feel for who lived in this space that wasn't there. But, you know, after a while, you're picking up so many things. It's kind of like, okay, I kind of get the point. Yeah. I'm kind of being given a, you know, a plethora of examples at this point now. Do I really need to have a 15th example of what this character was into yes. or something like that? But with this game, you know, the amount of things that you can interact with are so fleeting that you really are only allowed to form an opinion about a character that the developer wants you to. And, you know... For some, that might sound restrictive, and it is restrictive, but I think, again, it is such a tightly constructed and concise narrative and package that it's actually, again, a compliment to just how precise of a story they're telling. Absolutely. And I don't really view that as being restrictive in the traditional sense because, you know, there are some experiences where the player can craft their own opinion about characters. They can craft their own interpretation about a character or this and that. But with something such as this, it's really not about that. It's about this is the story that's being told and there's no real deviation from that. You know, again, we'll get into more of the surreal nature mm -hmm. of the dreamscape and those things later in the game that are a little more open to interpretation. But even still, once you get over maybe the jarring fact of waking up and there's a buffalo in your room, uh, there's not a lot to interpret other than exactly what the developer and storytellers want you to, which I don't think is a negative in my opinion. No, not at all. Not at all. So 
there are several things that we, we've sort of mentioned here. Um, but the the buffalo in the room, or bison, if you will, is probably the music. Um, which I, I know you wanted to bring this up, is that how the role of music helps to shape the tone. And, you know, I have often spoken about how crucial a good score can be in making me enjoy even the most middling game. And I said, you know, don't nod, you know, behind Life is Strange and such. They understood that this before that, when they made uh, the inventive, if underwhelming, uh, Remember Me. Um, the score by, you know, Olivier de Rivière, if I've got his name right, who's done great work on stuff like Dying Light, to um, he absolutely sold the neo-future world in that game and in a way that the game's story would have struggled to convey on its own. Um, you know, his music with the use of pheromone and like this, it felt very Star Trek-y in a way and it, it fit. And you could see that he got the vision of the game perfectly. So here, with Lyndon Holland's like close involvement with development, you know, with co-writing the game and obviously having such close access to everything about the game um, it feels especially crucial in how the music lines up with the sights on screen because he understands the influences he taps into the emotions of each scene musically um, I mean the scene I always absolutely always bring up when I talk about this game and have done for years is the whole Sojourner's Truth scene in the bar named Sojourner's Truth, which is probably the most Lynchian part of it, the most Twin Peaksy bit of it. The music is very Twin Peaks, as I said at the time. I didn't really get that because I hadn't watched it, but it is so much like that. And the way it just goes from like, here you are in this scuzzy bar in the back of nowhere in Virginia, and there's this you know band playing this very you know, dreamy sort of tune, which reminded me of like uh, the days of working in you know doing the night portering at hotels when you had like the the house band on there's a band that used to do stuff like Fleetwood Mac stuff and like they do all like stuff like, play Albatross for instance you know if you've had that you know, right. that gloom gloom thing and it instantly reminded me of that and it was like that sort of dreaminess when you're really really tired and you you kind of listen to that dreamy guitar and it just kind of takes you on a trip in itself without ever going anywhere. And this scene really captures that. You know, the music is, is the key to it. And the fact that using the device of, you know, like cutting to the next scene, that it does sort of build to a crescendo and, you know, goes to them, you know, the two agents, like outside of a water tower, like drinking, looking over the town. And it just, you know, without saying a word, Cutting to another scene almost immediately, it builds so much connection with the story in in that short section that you know instantly it just elevated the game for me in such a way that I was blown away. And you know, Lyndon Holland's score is phenomenal in this game. I mean, it is you know one of my favorite video game scores ever. You know. You know, he knows latch when it comes to doing the score for the follow-up game, Last Stop. But this is just like, yeah, he gets it. Uh, with the uh, Czech Philharmonic, Philharmonic Orchestra he as well, it, helping out. Yeah, it is just grand stuff. 
got to lead with the fact that like the game won a BAFTA for that, mm. right? Is for composer Lyndon Hall and score. And when you have a game that is conveying, you know, again, speaking to like the surreal nature of some elements of it, like these are still very grounded people and these are very grounded situations and emotions that they're yeah. dealing with and grappling with. And, you know, if you're going to not use dialogue or rely on dialogue to tell the story, like the physicality can only do so much. If you are devoid of a score, it's not going to carry the same emotional weight. That's I don't it. care how great the animation or how precise each of those interactions is going to be. Um, and if anything, this is the type of game that I think really instills just how important a good score is. Yes. And, you know, one thing that I've, had read and I forget of course where it was from, but you know, the best scores this person wrote are the ones that you don't really pay attention to initially when experiencing something, but it's the thing that as soon as the experience is over, it's stuck in the back of your mind. And I think that that's how I would describe my time with Virginia. And if anything, when I went back and was listening to the score on YouTube, because for whatever reason, it's not on Spotify and the like, um, I started to think about the key scenes when it hit those crescendos, which, if anything, it makes me realize just the reinforced importance of those scores and those moments and beats. Because without those, I mean, who's to say those scenes carry the same weight that they would without that score? Um, And I think, you know, your example of them being on the watchtower, the water tower and drinking beers and stuff like, again, they don't exchange words. They're just leaning over a railing and drinking. But if you don't have that score, the importance of that, or rather, I suppose, just like capturing the arc of their investigation, yeah, it's not as relevant or it's not as important. Or perhaps you would just look at that scene and be like, well, that's just padding or that's just wasting time until the next you know, big development in the case, which, if anything, I would say... This game, in again, such a short amount of time, it captures the grounded nature of investigations, which are, you know, based on Hollywood and TV, if there's an hour, typically it's like, well, yeah, you have this beat, this beat, this beat, and then a conviction or yeah. they get released or this or that. But this game really doesn't have that big moment, right? It doesn't have that big sort of like court case moment or that big arrest or this and that no. because it captures and highlights kind of the mundane nature of an investigation. And rather than those being viewed as just being like downtime or, you know, just waiting until the next clue, you know, there's a personalness to everything that you're informed in some little way about each of the characters, whether or not that factors into the case by the end of the game. Mm. Yeah. It is a really interesting way of telling that. And it goes back to what you were saying before about, but that it almost becomes secondary because it's almost, you know, as Carver, you know, you had this case where you are basically trying to investigate your partner and that really is your priority, but also you're trying to impress yourself upon this first big case you've been given otherwise. And, you know, as the player and you probably even as the character, you you have an awareness that, you know, you're being used but you know that you know, being used and if you give the right results that it might get you a leg up in your career and how vicious that is. You know, it, all those conflicting emotions come through in what happens, you know, and it, it leads to this sort of segmented chaos of 
the one case and then the, the case against your partner and then your own personal problems and all the three things sort of delve into each other and especially when you get into the dreamscapes and that it really does just it shows a person's anxieties of the day bleeding into their tired nightlife you know and and that to me just feels like such a personal touch which is impressive yeah absolutely and i think that you know again i really can't reinforce just the the depth and the layers to the storytelling here that again has not a lick of dialogue in Mm. it like the idea that it tackles you know the parent child and lineage of change and really you know typically that's something that you know you would talk about in terms of maybe something along the lines of like you know it might seem like an extreme example but my brain immediately goes to film right and yeah you know, children ending a line of something like, let's say, abuse or domestic violence or something like that, right? And kind of like they experience it, their father experienced it, but this child is going, when they grow up, are going to be the person that stops that line of, you know, generational trauma that gets passed down. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this game, what it tackles is rather the characters going down the parents' paths, right? And we see that Maria is falling in her mother's footsteps, right? Who was also an FBI agent. Yeah. And she, like her mother, has been largely discredited but not fired by the FBI for her unconditional approach to things. And then we see the protagonist, Anne, who's following in her father's footsteps and how if she continues going along with what she is doing of like essentially ratting out her coworkers, she'll progress through the ranks, but her life is going to be spent essentially ratting out people that, you know, are doing things that the people above her are not approving of. Yeah but is going to make real change essentially or break the regimented approach to, you know, whether it be the FBI's handling of cases or how they handle their internal policies and practices and things like that. And, and, you know, the player quite literally is given an example of what the next, let's say 15 years of her career is going to be right. If she keeps ratting out people, she'll eventually become her boss and then she'll be giving out cases of, hey, you need to investigate this person we deem untrustworthy or this person who is rocking the boat too much. And, you know, the fact that they're able to convey she's going to make a distinct decision to stop that cycle of, you know, essentially ratting out coworkers, whether it's based mm-hmm. on what they're doing or at one point, you know, again, there's no dialogue, but it's impressed upon the fact that at one point, she ends up investigating a coworker who seems to be, you know, um, of Middle Eastern descent or, you know, specific religious tyings that they might have just based off of that. Mm. And so it just shows that, like, again, the fact that you're able to have a character that grapples with that, their own history, you get to see a, the inkling of what their future career might be and that they're able to make a distinct decision to stop that cycle. Yeah. I mean – it sounds simplistic, but when it's not informed by dialogue, but you can still have that takeaway. I mean, I find that to be a remarkable example of just the physicality of storytelling uh, and, you know, it's superb direction. It really is. Yeah. Uh, it, it cannot be faulted in, in that regard for me. It, it just gets what it's going for throughout. And, you know, I know one of your original questions about this game was, you know, does it feel ambiguous to a fault? And I th- my response at the time was basically, you know, 
I can see it being a bone of contention, but you know, coming back to it you know, now, even I, even now, I was able to appreciate the smaller touches that signpost the game's themes and meanings. And you know, we've just literally discussed you know the, the what that's about and how we've grasped what the game is going for. You know, it, it's there. You know, so it's sure maybe it's ambiguous in the sense of like if you want stuff spoon fed, you know. That's, which is fair enough if you do if that's the kind of game you want that's absolutely fine but it's not a game that's doing that it, it is trying to convey things and make you pay attention to mannerisms and music and things like that you know the character models themselves are very simplistic you know on purpose i feel you know everything feels like you know puppets if you will and that's that works perfectly for it so, because you are then not paying attention to facial details so much, but expression, slight expressions and body movements, and that's exactly how it should be. And, and it, it conveys so much in that that you know we have literally just discussed it that way. Yeah, you know, I think that in more and talking about it with you and having some time away from the game and just thinking about it, you know, the ambiguity comes more from the interpretation of a lot of the surreal elements and whatnot. Yeah. And before we dive too much into those, I want us to take a quick break. And when we come back, we can talk about how, you know, immediately those might seem jarring and they might throw a wrench in the overall pacing of these things. But the further from your time with the game, if anything, I find that it really does solidify exactly the turmoil that these characters are experiencing internally. But having this very, you know, fantastical and external exploration of those feelings in uh, unconventional ways. All right, and we're back from our break. And, you know, diving into the more surreal and supernatural elements that we've briefly mentioned and, you know, kind of alluded to in getting down to them, you know, before we even get into the finale, which by far initially is the most jarring and the most overtly strange moment, right? There are, you know, inklings of the supernatural or placing an unnatural emphasis on certain things that crop up throughout the game. But it is very remarkable, I find. And again, it's a testament to the direction of the game and of every scene of the game that everything has a greater significance. Um, I think the first instance that really stood out to me was, is that, and again, like going into the game and not knowing anything about it and not knowing how deep it's going to dabble in the supernatural, just because I had played last stop before I'd played this. Mm. And so, which, you know, is, a much more sci-fi focused game uh, and whatnot, which is not a criticism. It's just that it is very much, I would say it's more almost like an episode of Doctor Who or something (laughs) from the the upfront, right? Um, It's not shy about that. But with this game, when it presents it as being much more grounded, you're waiting in line initially and in a corridor with like other agents in front of you. And all you can see is like a red glow from around the corner. Yeah. And initially I was like, okay, how supernatural does this game get? Is this going to go, there's some kind of entity or some kind of cosmic element to this. And then when you get around the corner and you have to wait a good 60 seconds before you see what's around the corner and you realize that you're just at a graduation ceremony. Mm -hmm. And I think that that again is such a fantastic example of how a game can occupy the horror adjacent space And yet it doesn't have a scary moment. It builds tension. It builds the fact of the unknowing. But at the end of the day, 
those feelings that the player feels are reminiscent, I would assume, of like what that character is feeling in mm. that moment. They don't know what's waiting, even if they know they're there for to graduate until you're on that stage and shaking a hand and getting a badge or a diploma. You really don't know what to expect in that moment. And to make that palpable for the player, I find to be, you know, again, a really stellar example of direction. Yeah, and it's something they repeat later, you know, in dreamlike form, you know, which is, you know, where they subvert that expectation somewhat and bring you out into a time where you're a little more bewildered by it again in a very different manner. And yeah, I, I like that aspect of it as we were just saying before about the dreamlike states where they feed on the character's anxiety uh, and that opening scene very much feels like that you know and i feel that's why it then repeats into dream form where you know it it manifests itself in a new way that, that, that once again comes across the worries of the day it, it's mm. yeah scenes like that are just really understated in how well they, they project that sort of paranoia and worry about what's going on and yeah because uh, i'm sure for you coming into it expecting something very horror-led that it does just instantly give you the feeling of okay what the fuck's going on here you know, and what, what am i getting into and then to sort of just be oh i'm on stage which is awkward but then that's the right feeling <laughs> you know that that's you know, and then then it cuts, and that again is like the first real time where you're like, "Oh, okay, this is cutting just like that." And yeah, it, it's a real good jolt to the system, I think, in terms of like getting the game's ideas across. Yeah, you know, it's, and especially it captures the anxiety of the unknown. But then, you know, generally speaking, once you actually have the experience that you're either anxious or worried about. Mm you almost kind of feel stupid at the end of the day because it's like, well, that was that was exactly what they said it was going to yeah. be. I don't know why I worried about that. And I think that they capture that really well. But, you know, furthermore, there's a significance and an importance that's tied to the more uh, surreal elements of the game and especially in the dreams and things like that, that, you know, I find to be uplifting to the overall storytelling rather than ever being... I suppose not a hindrance, but it never feels like it's being surreal or strange for the sake of being so. It's always mm -hmm. in service of something, which, you know, I mentioned the bison scene where in one moment you wake up and you look over in your bed and there's a bison standing next to the bed. And it's like, yeah, that's a shocking moment. But again, it's tied to a, a real world significance to the character in that they're driving one night as part of their investigation and they almost crash into one. And, yeah. you know, it would be what I think is the most realistic portrayal of of surreal dreams in that, you know, the placement of certain things might be strange and shocking and surprising, but at the end of the day, like them being present is informed by something. It's not just there to yeah. be like, oh, what the fuck? There's a bison. No, it's informed by something. And the fact that that was a near death experience for the play, for the character and her partner, it's like, yeah, that's going to be recurring. Um, so I think that again, you know, the fact that they're able to have these moments that are very distinct in my mind, they're not distinct just because they are strange or that they're there to shock or to, you know, say, oh, well, yeah, you could say it's horror adjacent or these things. But it's furthermore just informing a mental state of a character that dialogue normally would suffice. But mm. 
it just kind of furthermore speaks to the vision that they have for this particular type of story. And the fact they're able to sell it as well as they do visually, almost entirely visually, you know, we talked about the soundtrack and these things, um, just it remains incredibly remarkable and something that I haven't been able to stop thinking about all week. Yeah, it, it really does just tie everything together so wonderfully, I think. And I think it's funny, too, that we've talked as long as we have. And, you know, we haven't really talked about the case, but the case itself is not the interesting part of this game, I found. I mean, if anything, again, it it provides a very procedural, I hesitate to say paint by the numbers, but it is a very basic procedural type of case that acts as the foundation. But there's more there than just that case. And if anything, it's a testament to how well orchestrated the own, the protagonist's plight itself is that I ended up forgetting about the case. I was like, I don't care about this missing kid. I want to figure out more about the significance of everything. Yeah, and the other thing is that it, you know, it does all still tie up to a degree, you know, where it, it makes sense in the end. And, you know, during the, the sort of last hurrah, you have this sort of revelation into various power people, you know, that you had in this, this story and their, their, their follies and weaknesses, if you will. And then suddenly it clicks a bit more. You're like, oh, okay. So this, you know, the, the paranoia in the story is redeemed somewhat. You know, it's not really paranoia. There really is something going on. And you really are being pushed away from it. And this whole case was meant to be like a soft hit, you know, a, a, a softball for you to sort of use as an excuse to investigate your partner. You know, your partner who, as it turns out, shows just how deeply rooted this idea of like being paranoid of your fellow operative is because they're also spying on you because they know what happens in this you know even when you know the the shock revelation comes out you know when they find she finds maria finds a file on her in your bag and leaves without you in the middle of the night while you're at the state at the uh, petrol station she still kind of knew you know she still kind of got it she knew but she was just kind of hoping i think you know, we just talked about the uh, Sojourner's Truth part, you know, where there was a bonding and it felt like there was a connection. And the other reason why that ends up working so well is because then it shows that as much as the betrayal is on the cards, you know, for promotion, it's like there's a hesitancy for that to happen. And, you know, the, you can see there are cracks forming in the ideals of what you know, the FBI should be and how it should work and operate. And so to go for all that and then for her to, Maria to discover this betrayal of sorts, you know, you know, in tr- typical, you know, filmic fashion of like, oh, just as we're getting along, you've discovered my secret <laughs> problem all along that I would have told you, but, you know, things had been too chaotic to sort of get around to sort of resolving that. And, you know, and that was great. And to know that all that was only happening because you're both being puppeted by people higher up who just wanted to move people out the way and, you know, you're a patsy to get someone else out of the way. And it ties everything up nicely, you know, towards the end, I think, and sort of makes it a redemption story for both. Yeah, you know, 
also, I think that it's a good utilization of the time period. And, mm. you know, I am, of course, not speaking from any personal experience, but the idea that two female agents in the FBI would view, you know, the hierarchy of what I assume based on, you know, what's shown in the game as being an all male hierarchy, right? Mm. How do you not view that as being a conspiracy of sorts, yeah. right? The idea that they are the puppet masters, they control all facets of government, whether it be, you know, both uh, federal and local, right? Because at the end of the game, when you have that moment where, you know, you're having this essentially cathartic LSD trip that further illustrates what it must be like to be in their shoes in that time period, in that agency, right? You see it as being a cult, right? Yes. And who's at the head of the cult is the military, the Air Force, the police, the FBI, this and that. And they're all men, of course. And so initially that might seem jarring. It might seem ridiculous, but it isn't when, again, you realize the plight of these characters and what they're going through that supersedes this case. And I think that that initially, or I suppose not initially, it would be after having some time away and thinking about it, like that is the true story. Yeah. And that is why that time period is such an imperative distinction between other perhaps walking simulators that haven't placed as much of an emphasis on a period, right? Because initially I was kind of like, well, what's the significance of 92? Like, what does that matter? Other than, you know, the year I was born. So big ups to 92. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, seriously, though, like the idea, though, that something like that, that could seem just like, oh, you know, whatever, they're going to set it back in the day. Mm -hmm. But then overall, it informs and it's not apparent from the jump. It informs overall the character's arc and their experience in a way that doesn't feel like it's berative and beating the player over the head with it. It's not kind of saying like, this is what it was like for everybody. Yeah. No, it's presenting a real world experience. And if anything, it's making it more palpably apparent how distressing that can be by presenting it as a conspiracy and, you know, a fantastical conspiracy. And yet the implications of it actually being a grounded conspiracy is never lost. Even if, you know, you see a fantastical depiction of it yeah. at the you know penultimate moment of the game. Yeah, very much so. But, you know, it's remarkable that we've uh, talked this long about a game that doesn't have a lick of dialogue again, mm. like I've mentioned. But I think that if anything, without, you know, focusing too much on the fact that pe some people were upset by the fact of, you know, whether it be the length or lack of interactivity. But I think that, you know, in spite of those criticisms, which, you know, I largely find to be unfounded because all the legwork is done in unconventional means and yet it's able to tell a story that is as personable as moving and as complex to a certain yeah. degree um, w in spite of those things and it's tacking on or rather utilizing elements that we typically attribute with filmmaking but it tells just as you know remarkable of a story in the medium of games and there is something added in that interactivity almost you know what you could say, oh, well, it kind of just feels like an episode of The X-Files or Twin Peaks or this or that. But, you know, those are viewed as being influences yeah. rather than being homages, I think, just because of each of those brief moments of interactivity plays a significant role in the story and the progression of that. And, you know, even if it's just clicking one button to progress something, I think it there's an added emphasis there in having the player be in that director's chair once they're marked has gotten to that point. Yeah. 
Uh, I I feel it interesting that you brought Rethan up as a uh, you know a point of reference because yeah the the divisiveness of his films is very much in keeping with what I feel like variable state have done as well you know whilst not in quite the same manner. I just think in terms of approach, it's why I reference Von Trier as well, because, you know, it's another one that likes to go for something a bit out there, but usually with shop value, which, you know, that, you know I didn't feel it went that far, but more on a uh, general artistic level. So, yeah, Refn is definitely another good reference point for this, that um, you can see absolutely why people don't like it and how even someone that loves one thing by this person by this developer may bounce off the next because it won't always work you know with Refn for instance you know I hate Only God Forgives you know <laughs> but I love the Neon Demon I love Drive you know so who doesn't love Drive but you know <laughs> so, and you know so you go back and forth on what you do and don't love because it's so personal you know, in a way and indulgent that you are going to get moments where you're like, well, this doesn't feel like it has anything for me. Plus when what you get from smaller teams is you will get, you know, or something very much led by one or two people is you're going to get that personal side that is going to feel a bit more abrasive if you're looking for something that feels very vaguely connected to, oh yes, this this is what I like. I like this sort of vague thing I can think of it has deeper connections and if you're not you know into those things then yeah you're gonna bounce hard you know of of such things and i'm always very admiring of things like that because you know whether i like them or not is another thing but i will always respect the idea that you can just go out there and make something so very much you in an era where it's things tend to feel made by committee, you know, even in the indie space that can happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, games like this, just like are very different from everything else in it, in that subgenre of game anyway, are so refreshing. Yeah. You know, when you come across a game like this, that is so upfront with being uncompromising Mm. and, you know, taking those big, whether it be narrative or design swings and not doing it just to be abrasive, but it might come off as abrasive, but there is, you know, again, a lot of planning and a lot of thought into these swings that might be viewed as abrasive. And yet they're in service of something that's not going to be apparent Mm -hmm. until, you know, the conclusion of that narrative or, you know, taking a day or two removed from that experience to really process everything. And, you know, I, I think, again, it's talking larger scale about games and the interactive media that it's more about almost like retraining the masses brains for the types of experiences that can be within video games. Right. You know, it again, it's a conversation that I'm sure will never end. It's, you know, been going on now for probably a decade plus in terms of like what constitutes a video game, what constitutes a game and. I think that a game such as Virginia serves as a really great example of something that's off the beaten path. That's not what you've experienced much of previously. And yet giving it a chance and accepting the fact that it's going to be different, but trusting that the developers are doing so 
because they have a unique style of storytelling akin to film. Yeah. That's something that, you know, if you're open to that, that you will have a rewarding experience that you might not describe as being fun to play, but it is equally as rewarding of an experience, narratively speaking, as, you know, some of your favorite films or just storytelling in general. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, that's one of those things that I love about Chopping Block and doing Safe Room is that we can have these conversations about games that maybe momentarily dabble in horror or something that's horror adjacent. But at the end of the day, we can have a deeper conversation about it. But yeah, this was a great pick of yours. And, you know, it speaks to you knowing my taste in games because this was (laughs) right up my alley. And uh, yeah, I always look forward to Chopping Block. Gives me an excuse to you know, chip away at that back catalog and hopefully I'll have something for you in the future that uh, I can return the favor. Fair enough. I, I will say just, you know, I, I I did remember this being more horror-tinged than I found it this time. But I will say that it does unsettle and disorientate really well. And, you know, the ambiguity and the jump cut, cuts that we get, they, they constantly rock your reality and provide this sort of surreal atmosphere that that can be hypnotic, you know, in an almost frightening manner, you know, where it, you just feel drawn into the chaos of it all. And that, for me, is a very particular niche kind of horror, an unsettling nature that, you know, we were talking about Refn and Von Trier. They are directors that have an aspect of that in them, where, you know, they, they can be very matter-of-fact and dry about things, but... There's something unsettling under the surface of that, and this has a bit of that. Well, it feels almost like in like replicating insomnia, right? Mm. It's kind of like you lose track of what is connecting major events, but the major events themselves are memorable, but yeah. you almost can't remember how you got to that or what led up to that or yeah. how this major event snuck up on you, which, you know, is... I would I describe as being scary, but in a different way than traditional scary, yes. right? It's kind of like how did we get here? And trying to piece that together can be disorienting and, you know, disorienting in and of itself, I find to be a scary experience, you know, the rare amount of times I've uh, encountered it. But, you know, as always, uh, I appreciate, you know, chatting about things that are maybe off the beaten path of what people view as traditional horror. So for that, I thank you, Neil, as always. And, uh, I look forward to chatting more horror with you next week. Until the next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can tweet us or email us at saferoompod at gmail.com or on Twitter at Safe Room Pod if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next Monday.